hearing aids. <laughs> I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Cheslev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the, in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed with your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And we'll pray. Lord, I do thank you again for your word, your life, God, for your, the ministry of your spirit to teach us and to lead us into all that is true and good, that we might be those who worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray that we would hear of you and that we would respond, God, with willing hearts, obedient hearts, and that you would be free, God, to work in us for your glory in response to the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You can't um, really pick up any commentary, it seems, on Nehemiah without somebody saying that it's um, the go-to book in the Bible on leadership. And so writer after writer has made a big deal about what an exemplary leader Nehemiah was and all that you can learn from leadership by reading this book. Now, I've read books on leadership, and I'm not opposed to them. There's always good things that can be gleaned. And all of us in our various roles, leader, leadership roles, um, could learn more. But I don't think that Nehemiah would have wanted to be known as a great leader. I think about the different people that God raised up throughout time, beginning with maybe Abraham, Moses, David, and they all had 
great giftedness, um, but they weren't chosen because of their giftedness. I don't know what Abraham's was. Maybe he was good at walking because he walked his whole life. Um, Moses, obviously been trained and was educated and a military leader and all, but God didn't choose Abraham because he knew how to walk. He didn't choose Moses because he was educated Um, He didn't choose David because he was a good fighter. He fought a lion and fought a bear. Well, that's a guy I need. I need a good fighter to be king. He chose each of these people because in their own eyes, they were nothing. And they had simply made themselves available to God, and God raised them up, and God gifted them for the task that he raised them up for. I'm in thinking about this in Nehemiah, it's... um, Maybe a little providential that our missionary moment was about this um, ministry down in Costa Rica, which is now spread throughout Central America. You don't know the the couple that started that ministry, but it's Bill and Sandy Davidson, and one of their daughters, Holly, was a student at His Hill, um, I guess probably 10 or 12 years ago now. And um, we had the chance to meet them on more than one occasion, and they are, and I say this complimentarily, they are some of the most unimpressive people that you would ever meet. I love Bill and Sandy. They are just fantastic people. Canadians that God put on their heart, the people of Latin America, and they moved down there, not part of a mission agency, um, just on their own. To this day, Bill would say that he can barely speak Spanish. Um, and, and they just looked to God for what God wanted them to do in Latin America, and they started writing school curriculum leading kids to Jesus. And a few schools took it on. And there was such remarkable transformation in the lives of those kids and their families that it just began on its own spreading. And so it's a very small organization. And, and as Nathan said, Something like of the 900,000 school children in Nicaragua, 800,000 of them are getting this literature into their hands. And that's just in one country. And these people, I mean, I'm telling you, they, they are just your average person. I mean, there's nothing remarkable about Bill and Sandy except they're available. And it is just, it's such an encouragement to be around them. It's not because of their leadership abilities. It's not because of their administrative skills. It's not because of anything. They're just average people available to Jesus. And God is using them remarkably in Central America. We can't get this critical race theory out of our schools. And down there, they can't get Jesus material fast enough into their schools. And God is really, really using it. Nehemiah is known for a lot of things. To be a cupbearer, and by the way, this is the last statement. He doesn't start out this book, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. It's the last statement in this first chapter. It's almost as an an afterthought. Now, I was the cupbearer of the king. Because he doesn't want us to focus on that. Because we're likely to think, well, cupbearer, yeah, man, this guy, he's a great guy. And he, he was undoubtedly gifted, talented. But that's not why God raised him up. He couldn't have been cupbearer if there wasn't something else that was already true in his life. As cupbearer in these ancient societies, man, there was, there was hardly maybe no one that was as close to the king as the cupbearer was. 
The king never ate or drank anything without the cupbearer first tasting it. And if the cupbearer didn't die, then the king knew it was good to eat. And so he had, and he had just ultimate, the ultimate confidence of the king. He listened in on everything that was being said, was often the first guy that the king would go to for advice. They were close. They were tight. In some societies, the cupbearer was the keeper of the signet ring. You don't get more responsibility than that. And so he is, Nehemiah is in a tremendous position of privilege. He was a man of courage, a man of vision, a man of, of fortitude, of determination, a man of integrity, of honesty. I mean, you, you just can't give enough accolades to Nehemiah. But Nehemiah would have said, if there's one thing that qualifies me, it is that I'm a servant of God. And that was his, seems to be his favorite title of himself. When he talked to God, he just said, God, your servant. Not God, I'm the cupbearer. I'm the guy that, you know, can get this done like Moses thought. Moses thought, I can deliver these people. And God says, you need 40 more years to unlearn that. And he puts him in the backside of the desert, 40 years taking care of somebody else's sheep. And then God says, now you're qualified. Because you see yourself as nothing. And Nehemiah, I have no doubt, did not begin to see himself as qualified to help anybody simply because he was in a position that was very, very significant. Nehemiah, the name means Yahweh comforts or the Lord has comforted. And when he hears of the distress of the people back in Jerusalem, they needed comfort. And God uses this man to bring that comfort and encouragement to the people. But this is not a book on leadership. It's not how to be successful like Nehemiah. He was a good leader. He was a good administrator. But the point is that, that even the enemies in this book make, when they see the walls rebuilt, because that's what God raises up Nehemiah for, is the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to do it in 52 days. Those walls were abandoned, torn down for over 140 years. And in comes Nehemiah, and in 52 days, they're all back up again. Even the enemies recognize that God did it. They said they could not have done this without the help of God. They didn't say they could not have done this without the help of Nehemiah. They couldn't have done this without the help of God. The book is divided very simply. The first half of the book is on the reconstruction of the wall, and the second half of the book is on the restoration or reconstruction of the people. Nehemiah will spend 12 years in Jerusalem in the first half of the book, but only 52 days to rebuild the wall. The contemporary prophet is Malachi. You always want to see how is Christ revealed in each book of the Bible, and in this book, it seems to be that Christ is revealed in how he's being anticipated. Everything at the, by the close of Nehemiah has been restored except a king sitting on the throne. So that leaves us with anticipation. The temple is rebuilt. Jerusalem has rebuilt. The walls have been reconstructed. The covenant has been renewed. The people have been reformed. The messianic line is intact. Everything is in place except the king. And this is the last book of the Old Testament. And we know Malachi is the last we have in our Bibles, but historically, Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. 
And so everything is set. The stage is set for Jesus to come on, on the scene. But they're going to have to wait 400 years for that to happen. Nehemiah is also significant historically because of that decree that was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem because that starts the prophetic clock running. What I mean by that, if you go over with me into Daniel chapter 9, the very significant prophecy here, and Nehemiah would have been aware of it. And in Daniel chapter 9, the end of the chapter, it says in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a very precise prophecy. And so the prophetic clock is now starting. They hit the stop, the start. Now it's clicking. And when, when Artaxerxes said, I am making a decree, Nehemiah, you get to go back and rebuild that city, that's the starting point for this clock. And it says that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 and a week with seven years. So from that point, and we know the date, March 4th, 444 B.C., from that date, there would be 400, uh, I'm sorry, 483 years until the Messiah is not born but cut off. And so this is why the wise men in Matthew are coming to Jerusalem looking for the king because they saw his star in heaven which said that he had been born. And they know the approximate time that that would be because of Daniel's prophecy, and that's why they are anticipating and looking for the sign of his birth. But it says from the time that of the issuing of the decree to the cutting off of the Messiah would be 483 years. Exactly. Now, what does it mean for the Messiah to be cut off? There's, there's debate on that. And some people say that's the day of the crucifixion. Others say it's the day that he presented himself as king in his triumphal entry, and yet he was rejected as king by the Jewish leadership. And so taking that point of view, which I think there's great evidence for it, um, 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 Dr. Honer wrote a book on this, and, um, and it's, it's very good, very clear. And anyway, it, 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 on that day is also the day that they tried to get the people to stop crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember? And Jesus says, if they don't cry out, what did he say? The very rocks will cry out. And the, apparently the reason being because Jesus knew this is the day, the exact day that Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, 483 years to the day from when the decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. And so Jesus walks into Jerusalem on that day, presenting himself as king, and he was rejected. So this is very significant that Nehemiah is, is the guy that God raises up and that the, it, that the decree is, is given on his behalf so that he can go back and see Jerusalem rebuilt. And so now the only thing that we're waiting for at the close of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah is the coming of Jesus. Now, in 444 B.C., Nehemiah returned. That was 13 years after the return led by Ezra, and it was 94 years after Zerubbabel at the beginning of the book of Ezra. 
In total, from the beginning of the book of Ezra to the end of Nehemiah is 110 years of history. The thing that Nehemiah is most distressed about is that the walls are still torn down. Well, so what? We don't have walls around Bernie. There's no walls around San Antonio. What's the big deal? We talk a lot about walls these days, especially since President Trump was wanting to build one and President Biden is wanting to tear it down. Walls are significant, especially a wall around Jerusalem, hugely significant. The people are in distress and they are in shame because there is no wall. That wall made that city distinct. You knew exactly where the city started and where the city ended because of that wall. And remember, distinctiveness is huge to God. God has a city in a world where where Satan is the God. And under this planet where Satan is the God of this planet, God has a city. And it's to be expected that that city have a wall around it. Even in the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem will have a wall around it. God is into walls. They're biblical. And so that sets off the, the city limits, the boundaries of the city, and you know exactly where this city is. And you know when you're in the city, you know when you're out of the city, it made you distinct as a person, as a people, as a community. It was your identity. And so to have a city without walls was to have a city with no identity, to have a community that had no boundaries to it. So it wasn't even really a community. It was more than just protection. It was more than not being vulnerable. It was identification. It was distinctiveness. And they had no distinctives because they had no wall. No walls equated with shame, with failure, with defeat, with reproach. It was an embarrassment. You couldn't be what God wanted you to be. You couldn't be what you wanted to be without God unless your city had walls, hugely significant. And so when, Daniel, when Nehemiah hears there are no walls, he was greatly distressed, and he began to pray. It says that clearly, as we look at the beginning of this chapter and we see what's moving him and what's causing him to pray, it was because he's identifying with Israel and with the city of Jerusalem. It's clear where his orientation is. Like Daniel, who prayed three times a day toward Jerusalem while living in Babylon, Nehemiah's orientation is Israel. He is focused on Israel, he loves Israel, and he loves the people of Israel. In other words, he loves what God loves. This is a remarkable man because of his relationship with God, not because of his giftedness. It shouldn't um, escape us that as soon as he hears from his brother how bad things are back in Jerusalem, his immediate response is to pray. Verse 4, now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer will be mentioned 12 times in this book, much more than his leadership. Nehemiah is the man that he is because of his relationship with God. His, His reflexive reaction 
is prayer. Is that true for you and me? How a person reacts when he doesn't have time to think, he just reacts, reveals as much about a person as anything. When Adam sinned and Eve with him, their go-to response was not to go to God, but it was to hide in the bushes. It is not the first instinct of a man apart from God to go to God. That's why we have maybe, I don't know how many, it's got to be a hundred or more um, invitations in Scripture where God is saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. Why does God have to say that if it's our natural go-to response? It clearly isn't. We don't naturally come to God. Our natural response because of sin is to hide from God, to go everywhere but to Him. Not Nehemiah. As soon as he hears this bad news, God help. He immediately goes to God. Hits his first response, his first reaction, like the doctor that would tap your knee with that hammer and your, and your leg kicks out and you go, how do they? It's, not, it's just a reflex. His reflex is to go to God. This is not natural. For the Christian who is living in fellowship with God. It is the instinctive, reflexive, immediate response to go to Jesus. No one has to tell a person who is living in relationship with God to go to Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to bid us to come. This is why the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you longs for you. Deer don't normally long or pant for water. I've hunted all my life. I've never seen a deer panting for water. That's a a figure, a metaphor of being in distress. And he says, when I'm in distress, my heart longs for you. And that's the way it ought to be for each of us with every problem we face. We should not have to be encouraged turn to Jesus. It ought to be the reflexive, instinctive reaction in every one of us. It's not always true for any of us, but it can be more habitually true as we cultivate that relationship with him in prayer. I was working on the lawnmower this week, got two flat tires, don't know how that happened. Never had two flat tires on a lawnmower. And so I got the one fixed down in town and then realized there's another flat, I mean, there's a leak on the back tire. And so Weston happened to be over um, visiting. And so he came out in the garage and, and I showed him what a, z- a scissor jack is and how to jack up the lawnmower and how to get the tire off. And, and, um, and I just, without thinking about it, he's sitting there because he doesn't know that simple things, when I'm doing them, can become disasters. And, um, and so even just taking a tire off a lawnmower, I just said, Jesus, help. And he goes, why'd you do that? And I'm thinking, because you don't know your grandfather and how, <laughs> and how simple things can become disasters. But I told him, I, I said, and this is something you can't see. 
And nobody could have seen what was going on with Nehemiah, especially in the next chapter where he prays in the midst of the circumstance. He can't just close his eyes. He just has to pray in his heart. Nobody can see what's going on in somebody else's heart. Unless you speak. Because our words reveal our hearts. And it ought to be in all of us all the time. Just the immediate, unthinking response. Jesus. Jesus. How many times, sadly, it's anger. Or even profanity. And it's not Jesus. Nehemiah was a man whose heart is anchored in Jehovah God. And what God loved, he loved. And when he hears bad news, he knows it's not to him to fix it. Men are fixers. My first thought would have been, okay, what am I supposed to do? How can I do this? Nehemiah's first thought was God. He didn't see himself as able to fix the problem. He turned to the only one who could, to his God. Under trial, he immediately, reflexively called out to God. It is this essential orientation of Nehemiah which is the basis for the character of Nehemiah. Everything that I've already mentioned, the integrity, the passion, the wisdom, the perseverance, the courage, the clarity, the fortitude, the honesty, the faithfulness, trustworthiness, blamelessness, everything that you can see, including his leadership ability. All that he is, is because of this core grounding, this core orientation toward his God. In chapter 1, it begins with just a reflexive, reactive prayer. But we shouldn't miss that it's not just spontaneous. It's also enduring. We are told in verse 1, now it happened in the month Cheslev. And then we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, now it came about in the month Nisan. That's four months. If we didn't have that statement in chapter 2, verse 1, we would think on the same day that he started praying, he had his audience before the king, and the king said, what's wrong? Four months had passed. So what began as just an immediate response wasn't just a flash in the pan. And so we have both here, spontaneous prayer, but also a commitment to prayer. It's not just one or the other. It's both with him. It was heartfelt. It was empathetic. It was worshipful. It was humble. It was honest. It was specific. And it was surrendered. All of these things characterize um, Nehemiah's prayer here in this first chapter. He's an amazing man, and he's an amazing man because he's, I believe, just another average man who has yielded to the Lord and has sought God his whole life. And we're seeing the character of the man and his relationship with God in this first chapter. Now I want to just make some observations about the text itself here. If you'll note, it says in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. Now this word great is repeated a few times here 
in this chapter. So that must be significant. So the remnant that survived the captivity is in great distress and reproach. So Nehemiah begins to pray. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays, and then he says in verse 5, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So the second use of great. We've got a big problem, a great problem. But we have a great God. The great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have a great God, and he is a faithful God. We can trust him. We know that God is our hope and our confidence, and he is able no matter what we're facing. But Nehemiah also understands, even though they have a great problem, the city is without walls and the people are in distress and in shame. That is only because of sin. I don't know that it's an overstatement to say that every single problem we will ever face is because of sin, in one way or another. If there were no sin in this world, there would be no problems, right? Adam didn't have any problems. No problems, no worries. Sin enters into the picture, and problems galore. Thorns, thistles, cats, all kinds of problems. Just make sure you're awake. And the sin problem is greater than our problems. We would have no problems if it weren't because of sin. So the greatest problem we have is not the problems, but it is the sin which causes the problems. And so he begins to confess the sin of the people, and he includes himself in it just as Ezra did and Nehemiah and, and Daniel before them. So he says, verse 6, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned. Once again, just like Daniel, just like Ezra, why the we? They are not guilty of these sins. They're not the ones who turn their backs on God. They're not the idolaters. They're not the ones that were practicing witchcraft and lost all distinctiveness. And yet they say, we. Because they're part of a community of people. This is something that, again, in, in our at least American, if not Western world mentality, we have so little understanding of the corporate identity. I believe this is why, even in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. Not my Father. There's nothing wrong with addressing God as my Father. But prayer should have a corporate understanding to it. There is nothing that you need that the body of Christ doesn't need. We are one. When the body suffers, we all suffer. When the body rejoices, we all rejoice. We are so interconnected. When we see sin in somebody else's life, we should understand it is our sin. Because we're part of the same body. We have sinned. 
I and my father's house have sinned. It's humility. But it's also understanding where our identity is. And our identity is with the people of God. I know the most spiritual answer is to say our identity is with Jesus alone. And our identity is first and foremost with Jesus. But Jesus identifies with his body, his bride, so much so that you remember he said to Saul on the way to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if Jesus identifies with his body as being himself, it's not so spiritual to say my identity is with Jesus, but it's not with the people of Jesus. That's again, comes back to why we worship corporately. Because this is who we are. Jesus identifies with the corporate body. How can we do less? When the corporate body is sick, we are sick. When the corporate body is well, we are well. That's what Nehemiah is expressing. So then he says, though he doesn't use the word great, he might as well have in verse 7, for he says, we have acted very corruptly, or our corruption is great. We have a great problem because our sin is great. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. And so then he asked God to remember his covenant, which we know that he will, but he's praying in keeping with God's word and God's character. Remember your word, which you've commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And you've done that, God. We're scattered. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So God, I'm asking you to remember the second half of your promise. And they are your servants, your people. And now the fourth great whom you did redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. God, we've got a big problem, but you're a big God. But God, I can't think of how our big problem and our big God without thinking how great our sin is. Our sin is great. But God, you're a great redeemer. And there is no sin that you cannot, by your strong hand, redeem. And that is our hope. So Nehemiah understood the situation in Jerusalem is dire. But they're in dire straits because of their sin. Great problem because of great sin. But there is a great God. And our great God is strong to redeem. From time to time, I, I hear of people who say, God can't forgive me. What I've done, you do not understand. My sin is too great. I wouldn't forgive me. Why would God forgive me? My sin is too great. And some people remain hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve and will not come to God because they don't believe that they're God 
is either willing or able to redeem them from their sin. And God is both willing and able. He loves us, and He has given His Son to shed His blood on our behalf to redeem us from all our sin. And there is no better news in this world. So I appreciate Nehemiah, not because he's a great man in and of himself. I would say that if Nehemiah were standing here, he would say, just as he said in verse 4, I am your servant. I think it was verse 4. And then says it again at the end of the chapter. He's a man who understood that God is the Redeemer, a great God, a good God, and he is powerful to be able to redeem. And that is not dependent upon men, but on God's grace and mercy to those who come out of the bushes and say, Jesus, save me. And he does. And if we have trusted in him for our salvation... God's intent is to bring each of us into increasing understanding of his love and grace that our reflexive response in every situation is Jesus. But not just a reflexive response. That is a good thing. But also the constancy to come to him, to keep coming to him, to persevere in prayer, to be disciplined to discipline our hearts, our thoughts, taking every thought captive, to come to him constantly as the only one who can redeem. And God does. And Nehemiah happened to be the cupbearer, too. But that's not nearly as significant as simply being the servant of God. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you so much for your word and for the encouragement that you take ordinary men and women. As Major Thomas used to like to say, any old bush will do. And that when Moses looked at that bush that was on fire but not consumed, it was a rebuke to his own heart, once passionate for God, but it burned out in a moment. How could a bush continue to burn without burning up? The answer, God, is just simply your presence and one who is available to you. And I thank you, God, for each of the life examples that we have in Scripture, Abraham, Moses, David, Nehemiah, everyone, God, there's no exceptions. You use them because they were humble, available Vessels, God, for you to use as they came to you confessing their sin and looking to you, the strong one, to redeem them and to use them. And I thank you that nothing has changed. You are still the redeemer, the strong one. And our eyes, God, remain on you that you might deliver us and set us on that sure foundation, lifting us up out of the miry pit, putting us on a sure foundation of Jesus that you would be exalted in each of our lives and our praise would only be to you as your servants. In Jesus' name.
Amen.